I think of when I think of my mom is the word kind. One word that I think of my mom is um, funny. When I think of my mom, I think of successful. When I think about mom, she is nice, caring, successful. Cool, reliable, inspirational, hardworking, thoughtful, compassionate, fair, accessible. Mama, mama, mama. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Moms. Happy Mother's Day. Love you lots. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for all the blessings, Mom. Trust in you, Jesus, we trust in you.
Official meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow O Lord of heavenly armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord. His hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound. He thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking any wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. Give me everything you give me. 
Mother's Day to all the moms out there. The dictionary defines the word determined as having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. Now, I don't know about you, but they could have easily put a picture of my mother next to that definition because my mother was certainly a determined person. While there were times that I found her determination to be frustrating, as I look back, I actually now find it inspiring. 
My mother's determination served her and our family very well. She married at the age of 17. Her determination resulted in her staying married to the same person for 54 years. She carried, delivered 13, yes, 13 children. Her firstborn child died, sadly, at approximately six months of age. Her second child was stillborn after carrying him full term. She went on from there to raise 11 children in a 750 square foot space with one bathroom. My mother had a child in diapers for 17 consecutive years, and those were cloth diapers, not disposables. My mother's determination caused her to be resourceful. All of our mittens and hats, scarves, and winter socks were knit by her by hand. Everything she cooked was from scratch, mostly using the vegetables that she grew herself in the garden, berries that my family had foraged, fish and meat that my dad had caught or hunted. She made bread from scratch every single day of the week, except for Sunday. Our door was always open and she always welcomed friends and strangers alike. When my father experienced a life-changing workplace accident about five years prior to his retiring, my determined mother stepped up and started a home-based bakery and sold her goods to the local grocery and corner stores. Having had a determined mother, although frustrating many times, I must admit, proved to be a great blessing in my life. Today, we are going to consider a mother in the Bible named Hannah, who, because of her determination, was able to overcome the disappointment and bitterness in her life. Hannah demonstrates for us that when we experience disappointment and bitterness because our expectations are not met, we need to pursue God with focused determination, allowing him to bring good out of a hopeless situation. The first thing I want us to see from our passage today is resentment. Immediately in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we are introduced to a family that has some challenges, that has some, well, dysfunction. The husband, Elkanah, has two wives, Hannah, who was unable to have children, and Paniah, who was a baby-making machine resulting in many sons and daughters. It's likely that Hannah's inability to conceive was the reason for the second wife. And we are given some insight into the complexity of their situation. To not be able to have children in ancient times was considered to be the ultimate tragedy for a married woman. Society placed women who couldn't conceive on a lower social status. They were viewed as being flawed, broken. Clearly, she was the one unable to have children because her husband had successfully fathered children with his other wife. The impact for Hannah was threefold. The stigma of culture, the personal pain and disappointment of not being able to have a child, 
and her husband's hopes and dreams depended on her providing him with a son to perpetuate the name and inherit his estate. All of these would have brought shame on Hannah. Three times a year, Israelite men were required to present themselves at the central sanctuary to offer sacrifices in observation of the main religious festivals. At the time of this scripture, Shiloh was the location of the tabernacle. It was a location of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this particular story is likely centered around what was known as the fall festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. Normally, it was a time of great rejoicing, a celebration of God's blessing of a abundant harvest that had been gathered. According to God's law, the family members would share the sacrifices that were being offered up at this time. Elkanah shared with his whole family, but we're told that he gave Hannah a double portion of the food because he loved her and because he felt sorry for her because she couldn't have children. Paniah was very aware of Elkanah's love for Hannah and how he treated her as something as someone very special. So she became jealous and insecure because she knew that her husband loved Hannah more. Because of this, she continuously provoked and bullied Hannah concerning her inability to have children. She went right for that tender spot in Hannah's life. She used the annual pilgrimage as an opportunity to badger her to the point of tears to the point where Hannah could not even eat. What should have been a celebration was a time of great sadness for Hannah. Now, Elkanah noticed and asked, why is your heart sad? At first glance, we might interpret this question to be, why are you sad? But the accurate interpretation of this sentence is, why are you so resentful? Why are you so bitter? The shame the disappointment, the apparent failure of Hannah to provide what was culturally expected combined with the bullying of Paniah resulted in Hannah becoming a resentful, bitter person. While the blame for Hannah's inability to conceive ultimately fell on Hannah, if you read the text closely, it appears that they actually blamed God for this situation. It says the Lord had closed her womb as if God took what was biologically working and deliberately shut it down in order to inflict shame and pain on a woman and her family. You see, sometimes people have a hard time understanding and explaining and accepting painful realities. And so they need to blame someone. There was an underlying sense of resentment towards God because he had, in their minds, created this problem. Secondly, we see determination. Rather than allowing the pain, the resentment, the bitterness to push her away from God, it actually drew Hannah closer to God, resulting in determination on her part. It says, in bitterness, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Now, often bitterness results in anger, demands, arrogance. 
But for Hannah, her bitterness led her to humility. She referred to herself as a servant of God. God, I am not above you. I have no right to demand anything of you, but I still plead to you to remember me. Remember me. Now, remember me does not mean, God, don't forget me. It means, God, pay attention to me. Lavish your care on me. Consider me and my situation. Do what only you can do. Hannah was asking God to see the misery in her life and to bring a solution by giving her what she lacked and longed for, a son. And she was begging. Her begging shifted to bargaining. God, if you are willing to grant me what I desire more than anything in this world, then I will make a vow to you, a vow to ensure that her son would be separated, set apart his whole life for the Lord. She didn't say the words Nazarite vow, but it was certainly implied when she said, no razor will ever be used on his head. You see, often Nazarite vows were for limited periods of time, and the person could be a male or it could be a female, and they would abstain from being around dead bodies, any food or drink that came from the vine because grapes represented gluttony and drunkenness. And as an outward sign to others, they would not cut their hair. Hannah's offer was not just for a short time, but for his whole life. Technically, the mother could not even commit a child to a Nazarite vow. That would be the father that would have to give permission for that to happen. But that didn't stop Hannah. She was determined. And in her determination, she bargained with God. Hannah was praying and bargaining silently to the Lord, but her lips were moving. And Eli the priest observed her, but he misread her actions. Prayer in the ancient world was almost always audible. Because drunkenness often accompanied the celebration of the festivals, Eli assumed that she had a little too much to drink and was drunk, and he accused her of such. Now, Hannah was not intimidated. If she could find the faith and the resolve to rise above her bitterness, to beg and to bargain with God, no priest was going to intimidate or bully her. She had already experienced enough bullying as it was. So she replied, I am not drunk. I am pouring out my heart before the Lord. I am praying earnestly. I am deeply troubled. I am burdened in my spirit. I'm praying out in my anguish and my grief. Eli responded, sorry. My bad. Go in peace and may God grant you what you have asked for, even though I have no idea what it is. Anna felt better after crying out to God. So she ate some food and she was no longer downcast. She now had hope for the future. Thirdly, we see intervention. Hannah left Shiloh with her family and she returned home. And shortly after that, we see God's response to her prayer. The scripture says that the Lord remembered her. He paid attention to her situation. He considered her misery. 
he provided her with what only he could provide. And she became pregnant and had a son, and she named him Samuel. God made what was biologically impossible, possible. What seemed impossible with man was possible with God. Now, obviously, Elkanah supported her vow to the Lord because Samuel was set apart for the Lord, as Hannah had promised. Hannah waited until he was weaned, about three years of age in ancient cultures, and then she took him to Shiloh and stood once again before Eli, the priest. She reminded him that she was the woman who stood before him about four years earlier. She told him that at that time she was praying for a son and that God had worked a miracle and answered her prayer. She told him that she had made a vow with God that she would dedicate him to the Lord for his whole life. So here he is. Here's my son. I'm dedicating him. He's staying here with you. Samuel grew up ministering before the Lord at Shiloh under the leadership of Eli, the priest. Every year, his mother would visit him, bring him a new robe that she had made for him. God blessed Hannah with three more sons and two daughters. Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. His mother had kept her commitment. Samuel was the answer to a determined mother's prayer. But the impact of Samuel's life was much more far-reaching than the gift of motherhood. In his lifetime, Samuel served as a judge, as a priest, as a prophet in Israel. He became one of the great teachers of Israel, known for prayer and intercession. As a young boy, God used Samuel when the tabernacle environment was toxic and sinful because Eli's sons lacked respect for God and engaged in immoral activity. Samuel served in the transition period of Israel's history as they moved from the period of the judges to their first king. Samuel had the privilege of anointing both King Saul and King David as kings of Israel. The benefit of Samuel's birth was much more far-reaching than his mother had ever anticipated when she cried out to God for him to give her a son. There are three things that I would like us to take away from this sermon today. The first is unmet expectations. Most of us live our lives caught in the trap of expectations either our own expectations or the expectations of others that have been imposed upon us. Culture sets the standard of many of our expectations, what we should wear, how we should look, where we should live or the type of residence we should live in, the car we should drive, what we should eat, where we should eat, what phone we should own, the computer we should use, where we should shop, what we should watch, how we should be entertained, the values we should hold, the way we should think, the priorities we should set. Many of our personal expectations are based on these cultural expectations. We buy into them. We try to live up to the standard that's been set before us. So we set goals. We plan. 
We dream, we pursue our ambitions based on our own expectations that flow from culture's expectations. Those of us who are people of faith bring an extra layer of expectation to our lives. What we expect God to provide, what we expect God to do, how we expect God to do it. We expect certain things from God in terms of our family, in terms of our marriage or our care, our health, our provision, the prayers that we pray. My point is this, our lives are filled with expectations, some realistic, some unrealistic, but expectations nonetheless. And expectations often inevitably lead to disappointment. We can become disappointed in our faith when what we want spiritually doesn't happen, when we have expectation and God seemingly is not meeting our expectations. Secondly, assessing blame. Disappointment often leads to blame because we are desperate to try and make sense of our situation. We feel if we can understand why, then we'll feel better. And so we seek out who we can blame for the disappointment of our unmet expectations. We blame our spouses for a bad marriage. We blame our parents for a difficult upbringing. We blame our coworkers and bosses for a bad work situation. We blame our neighbor for the weeds on our lawn. We blame the bank for giving us a mortgage bigger than we could handle. We blame God for not doing what we think he should do. And sometimes we even blame ourselves. At the core of our being, there is a need to associate blame with our disappointment. Expectations lead to disappointment and disappointment leads to blame. We become bitter people because we allow our circumstances to negatively impact us when we are disappointed. But blame can also lead to a decision. What are we going to do with our lives when we are filled with unmet expectations? When it appears that everyone, including God, has let us down and everyone else is to blame. We need to make a decision. It has been my observation that our decision will either be to distance ourselves, withdraw from God and others, or our disappointment and bitterness will lead us to lean into God and towards others. Most common, at least at first, is to push away from God and others because in our minds, they've let us down. They were not fair and they owe us. But hopefully, after a period of time, we will reverse our actions and lean in. The best decision we can make, the best action we can take in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of our bitterness, is humility. Recognizing God is sovereign, that we need him, that any hope that we have for the future is found in him alone. When we recognize that, we weep much, we pray much, and we throw ourselves on him in desperation. We make a decision even though making the right decision is always difficult to make. And thirdly, making deals. Everyone loves a good deal. 
The best deals are win-win situations for both parties. I get what I need and you get what you need. It's a good deal. Often we take what I call an if-then approach to God, as if we are making a deal with God. God, if you heal me, if you answer me, if you save my marriage, if you rescue my kids, if you meet my needs, if you make my life happier, if you get me a job, then I will do something for you. I will attend church more often. I will pray more. I will read the Bible more. I'll increase my giving. I'll volunteer, maybe even in the children's ministry. If you do this for me, God, then I will do this for you. I'd like to suggest today that a better approach for our relationship with God is not if then, but even if. Taking a lesson from the three Hebrew children that are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace with an even if faith because they refuse to worship anyone but God. This is what they said. I know my God will deliver me, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, I will still trust him. Even if. Even if you don't heal me. Even if my marriage falls apart. Even if my kids rebel. Even if I lose my house or my job. Even if I'm broke. Even if my needs aren't met. I will trust you no matter what. That's the deal we need to make with God. And the truth is, that is the only true win-win situation. We can't lose when we trust him unconditionally. If we were to be honest today, we would admit that we often pray for and ask God for things that directly benefit us, our families, our close friends. But the truth is, God's work in our lives has a greater impact radius than we ever anticipated. We often cannot see things from God's point of view. We're often too close to the situation, too emotionally attached. I can say that I'm glad that God did not answer some of the prayers that I have prayed through the years. You see, whether God says yes, no, or wait, we need to trust that he always acts in light of the bigger situation. He always sees a picture that we cannot see or understand. And when he does act, it's not just for my benefit. It has a far reaching impact beyond me. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is to want God to remove all of the chaos from our lives because we believe that nothing good is happening in the midst of our chaos. I want you to know today that God's best work is accomplished in the midst of our chaos. When all seems hopeless, when the future, uh, you know, begins to fade from view, God is working by his spirit in our chaos. So in conclusion today, we're going to have disappointment in our lives when some of our expectations are not met. Our disappointments may even cause us to blame God and others and to ultimately attempt to bargain with God to get what we desire. 
the greatest benefit we can receive will come when we learn to trust God, even if we do not receive what we're asking for. When we experience disappointment and bitterness because our expectations are not met, we need to pursue God with focused determination, allowing him to bring good out of a hopeless situation.
on her. 